And so I hope he did a good job. We'll soon see, won't we? <laughs> well, we'll be in the, the last book of the Old Testament. You know what that is, right? We've been learning the, the Old Testament and New Testament books the last few Wednesday nights. So the last book of the Old Testament is what? Huh? Malachi, yeah. We'll be in Malachi chapter number one. Is everything okay? Aaron was teaching on the, the wiles of the devil this morning and how he affects you. Sometimes he gets into electronic equipment. Boy, he's good at that. I think the devil invented computers. And so we see some of the value in them, but he, he's running them. <laughs> I can tell when they go dead, when they go haywire, I think the devil's in them. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> An old preacher from the past by the name of Henry Ward Beecher was a well-known and respected pastor and everybody knew him all across the land. Well, he would have guest preachers once in a while and on this particular Sunday they had a large audience already gathered and, and when the preacher went to the pulpit it wasn't Henry Ward Beecher. It was his brother substituting for him. Well, as soon as people saw the substitute preacher getting in the pulpit, several people just got up and started walking out. And so being quick on his feet and quick-witted, he said, all right, if you came to worship Henry Ward Beecher this morning, you're dismissed, you can leave. If you came to worship the Lord, keep your seat. <laughs> and I don't know how many of the people went ahead and walked out, but that would have been embarrassing, wouldn't it? You know what? We're here to worship the Lord. I want to read beginning in chapter 1 of Malachi. Which, well, actually, this will read the whole chapter. It's short. It's just 14 verses. So follow along with me. The burden of the Lord, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet you say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? And yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. Now, the word hated there doesn't mean that God despised Esau. It means in comparison. The Bible speaks comparatively in literary sense. Like where Jesus said, you have to hate your father and mother if you're going to follow me. Well, he didn't mean you're supposed to despise your father and mother, your parents. He meant in comparison to the love you have for me, Jesus, then that love ought to be so superlative it ought to be compared to the love you have for your parents for your parents or your children, it ought to be like hatred. The love ought to be that great. So he says in verse 3, And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down. They shall call, they shall call them the border of the wickedness, the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? saith the Lord of hosts, 
unto you, O priests that despise my name. And you say, wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And you say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that you say the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person? Saith the Lord of hosts. And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle a fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name. And a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye have profaned it in that you say the table of the Lord is polluted and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. You said also, behold what a weariness it is. And I want you to underline that word weariness. Their worship had become weary, laborious. And you said also, behold what a weariness it is. And ye have snuffed at it saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought, brought that which was torn and the lame and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, which hath a flock in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. Well, if you come to worship the Lord today, you're in good company and a good place. And we'll learn a little more about worship as we go through this passage of Scripture. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you for your great name. Thank you that you are a great king. Thank you that, Lord, you have chosen us by your grace and your mercy, even though we were unworthy, you've chosen us because you give us a Savior and we trusted his name. And Lord, you saved us and we're grateful for that. And Lord, we're grateful for a place and a time to worship. We pray that you'd make our worship sweet. Lord, may it be sweet to your nostrils. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In this sacrifice and their actions, these priests especially and the people that they represented had become very obnoxious and insulting in their worship of the Lord. They'd grown tired of the Lord and, and so they, they just didn't uh, do what the Lord was pleased with. I heard about the, uh, the preacher that got invited home with a family after church one Sunday they invited him over to eat. This back in the Depression days when meat was scarce, any kind of food was scarce. And so they invited the preacher over to eat 
dinner with them after church on Sunday. And, and man, there's a platter of fried chicken on the table. And the wife said, uh, well, we knew you was pre- coming, preacher, so we killed a chicken and fried chicken for you. He said, man, alive, that looks good. But he said, you shouldn't have. He said, you shouldn't have killed one of your flock to just to feed me. She said, oh, it's okay. The thing was sick and we're going to die anyway. <laughs> well, you know what these Israelites were doing? They were picking out of their flock the blemished, the lame, the ones that had been torn by animals. They were bringing the culls of their flock and worship, worshiping the Lord, worship, I say that in quotes, worshiping the Lord with the refuse with the garbage, with something nobody else wanted. But I guess they thought this is good enough for the Lord. Hmm. In Malachi's day, society had become materialistic, self-centered. They were dishonest and immoral. It infected the priesthood. The, the men who were supposed to be representing God and preaching His Word, they, they were among the worst. And so Malachi... The prophet here is speaking primarily to the priests and indirectly to those who follow the priests. And maybe Malachi can help us see today that people do grow weary sometimes in their worship. They did in Israel. And it was, it was not a pleasant thing to the Lord. And today, people can grow weary of their worship. Isn't that true? You become weary and it's just not easy anymore to get in the mood to worship the Lord. It's just something done out of duty, responsibility, or somebody's expecting it. And this was what happened to Israel in this day. We're titling the message today, Weariness of Worship. Weariness of Worship. I heard a sermon probably 30 years ago by Adrian Rogers on when, what to do when, you're, when your worship gets weary or when you're weary of worship. Now, I, that title and the message, I don't remember it, much of the details from his message, but it, it struck a note in my heart. And I've remembered it all these years. And the past week or so, I've been reading out of the book of Malachi, and the Lord laid it on my heart to preach on that subject. And so, if I inadvertently hit on some of Brother Rogers' points, I think I've got different points, but I'll probably say something. I mean, the Bible says nothing new under the sun. And so, maybe he won't be too upset with me for using a title similar to his, because after all, it did come out of the Scripture. They became weary of their worship. And clearly, we can see in our text that the first sign of growing weary in worship for these Israelites was first that they were denying God's love. They were denying God's love. Circumstances had not turned out like they thought they would. Their expectations were this and things turned out like this. Has that ever happened to you? You expected God to do something in your life and he didn't work it out the way you thought? Well, that's what happened to these Israelites. In verse number two, it reveals their attitude. It says, Jesus, or God said, I have loved you, saith the Lord. 
Now, the Bible says God can't lie. Now, did he just say right here, I have loved you, and had he not said it in years past to Israel, I have loved you? He chose them to be his people, the apple of his eye. And yet, ye say, through Malachi, the people are speaking back to God. And they say, wherein hast thou loved us? You know, Malachi, Malachi says, for the Lord, he says, I have loved thee. And they say, oh yeah, show us how you loved thee, loved us. <laughs> we can't see it. They'd come back from Babylon. And with blood, sweat, and tears, they had rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And they had turned their backs on the idols of, of the Babylonians and the centuries of idolatry that had been present in Israel. They turned their backs on the idolatry. Man, they, they tried to do things right. But had God rewarded them? They said, no, no, you haven't done anything much for us, God. Had he restored the kingdom? No. No, that hadn't happened either. Had he fulfilled any of those glowing promises he had made? And I said, no, no, you hadn't fulfilled any of your promises, God. We're just, we're struggling along on our own. Had they sent the Messiah? Had God sent the Messiah yet that he had promised? No, no, he hadn't come either. He wouldn't come for 400 more years in the New Testament. So they're saying, no, we, we don't see anything you've done for us, God. Can you, can you kind of see their attitude, their way of thinking, and they're saying, yeah, we're just kind of tired of all this. I mean, we go out there and make these offerings, and, and we're going through the motions, and we're going through the rituals, but God, you hadn't really done anything for us. Well, that's dangerous ground, isn't it? Israel thought they had reason to doubt God's love for them. I read this out of... John Phillips' book, he said, Did God love the Jews? Let Paul, that Hebrew of Hebrews, answer by describing his kinsmen, Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and, prom and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Paul sounded like he thought, as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he thought God had been pretty good to Israel. Yet Malachi's contemporary asked, yeah, where, where have you loved us, God? God had chosen them as his own special people. And it's wicked for those Israelites to say, yeah, you, you hadn't really shown us any love, God. That's wicked to accuse God of not loving them when he's already done so much for them, when he has saved them from the heathen countries around them. And they say, yeah, show us how you loved us. We're not convinced. <laughs> Doubting God's word, doubting his love. <clears throat> and it's equally wrong when a Christian in today's dispensation, when a Christian doubts God's love. He loves you. You say, oh yeah, how does he love me? 
when he sent his son to spread his arms and be nailed to a cross of Calvary and shed his blood so you, the rotten you, the rotten sinful you, could be saved from your sins of which you could not pay yourself? Is that not love? What one of you would give your son or your daughter to die for somebody that didn't even like you? And it's wicked when we doubt God's love. It's just against the word of God. It's against his nature to say that. We say, but yeah, but bad things happen to good people. I mean, I've had financial problems and I've been, I've been trying to be faithful to God and I've had financial problems. Or we've tried to be faithful to the Lord and our kids have been real sick. Or <clears throat> we started trying to live for the Lord and every time we talk to somebody uh, we get raked over the coals for having a testimony for the Lord. So yeah, we're, we're kind of sick of this worship. We wonder if God's keeping his promise. And you probably have wondered, does God still know my address? Does God know my phone number? Does God really love me? Does God really intend to keep his promises to me? And it's wicked to think that he wouldn't. We live in a fallen world. I hear, I hear unsaved people say this a lot of the time. Well, if there was a God, why do all these bad things happen? Why is there starvation in, uh, in Ethiopia? Why, why are, are there sinful people in Russia attacking Ukraine? Why does this happen? And why is there disease if there is a God? Well, God didn't do any of that. Mankind brought these things upon himself because he's a fallen creature. God created a perfect world in the beginning. And we messed it up. You know why people get sick and die? It's because mankind sinned in the Garden of Eden and passed it down to you. We can't blame God for that. We can love him back knowing that he gave us a savior. <clears throat> If we begin to doubt God's love, it's a step towards weariness in worship. Have you grown tired of just worshiping the Lord? Going to church is just kind of a task. Years ago, I visited a church in Pine Bluff, and we were on a mission trip. I was in Bible college in Oklahoma City at the time, and <clears throat> we stayed with a family in Pine Bluff. And this young couple... I say young couple, they're probably in their 30s. They had some children. And they'd already lost a couple of those children because, because of some genetic defect that got passed down from the parents to their kids. Their children were all doomed to die before they became adults. They'd already lost a couple of them. They had a couple more probably three more. And I was talking to the dad and I said, will the same fate happen to these? He said, yeah, they'll, they'll die before they get grown probably. It's just the way the disease works. And I said, boy, that is tragic. How do you deal with this? How do you keep from becoming bitter? He said, my wife and I have decided that God is a God of love. He loves us. 
no matter what kind of disease our kids have. And we've decided just to love him and enjoy the time we've got with these kids until they die. And he picked up his little daughter. We go into church on a Wednesday night. He picked up his little daughter who was crippled and she was already in a wheelchair. And they had a van parked out front and he picked up his little daughter and she's just smiling. She couldn't walk, barely talk. And he picked her up. She was probably eight or ten years old. And he picked her up in his arms and smiled back at her and carried her out to the van and put her in her wheelchair in the van. He said, we just love those kids because God gave them to us. And he said, everybody's going to lose their kids someday. Ours just go a little sooner. But we're going to love them while we've got them because God loves us. You know, we live in a fallen world and it's not God's fault. Bad things happen to good people. There's a poem I like. It says, let me meet you on the mountain, Lord, just once. You wouldn't have to burn a whole bush, just a few smoking branches, and I would surely be your Moses. Let me meet you on the water, Lord, just once. It wouldn't have to be on White Rock Lake, just a puddle after the annual Dallas rain, and I would surely be Peter. Let me meet you on the road, Lord, just once. You wouldn't have to Blind me on North Central Expressway, just a few bright lights on the way to the chapel, and I would surely be your Paul. Let me meet you, Lord, just once, anywhere, anytime. Just meeting you in the Word is so hard sometimes. Must I always be your Thomas? There's a second cause of weariness of worship. Now, if you've experienced weariness in your worship and you have to go through the motions and you don't really feel like it, this message is for you. There's a second cause of weariness in your worship. Despising God's name. Look in verse number six. <clears throat> and we'll read a little bit just in a minute there. But everybody, I guess everybody likes to hear their name. I mean, if you're in a crowd of people and, and somebody calls your name out. If I'm in a crowd of people and and especially if I'm in a crowd where there's a lot of other people that I don't know, and, and somebody says, hey, Brother Brooks, hey, Rick. Man, my ears perk up because somebody knows me. I think we're all somewhat that way. We like to hear our name called because it's special. It's unique. It's just our name. We generally perk up and cherish the sound of our own name. I grew up in Izzard County in a little town of Mount Pleasant where I went to school, graduated from high school there. When we were growing up, we all gave each other nicknames. They were horrible names. I mean, offensive, insulting, terrible names. I mean, we had Toad, Borcoon, Frog, uh, Snuffy, Chipmunk, Chubby, Squeaky. That's just to remember a few of them. I mean, the nicknames was not one that any, any one of those people would have picked for themselves, I guarantee you. People like to be called by their own name generally, and especially irritating is it if somebody called you a, by a name that you don't like. Well, that's what's happening with these Israelites. They're, 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 they're despising the name of God. They're dragging down his name. God is a great king, the Bible says there, but they're despising his name. 
when the 1960s ended, San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district where the hippies hung out, that's the first hippies I ever heard of. I was writing a girl in Washington State in 1967, and she said, do you know what hippies are? And I said, well, I don't guess I've ever heard of one. This is when they first came on the scene, and she described what hippies were. And she said, they're, they're down in San Francisco, and they're kind of spreading out, and the movement is growing. Hippies were generally, you know, the flower children had on the bell-bottom pants, and uh, they didn't take baths as regular maybe as you do, <laughs> and scraggly-looking, and had a language all their own. They were kind of a, an offshoot similar to beatniks, which existed in the 50s, but the hippies were into drugs, and the beatniks weren't so much. And So <clears throat> after the 60s, which generation I grew up in, uh, the hippies moved down the coast a little further, and they got into, into uh, Santa Cruz and down that way, and... and uh, they gave their children weird names. <laughs> I mean, I thought I've heard some weird names uh, from people today, but the hippies were giving their kids names like uh, uh, Frisbee, Time Warp, Spring Fever, Earth, Love, Precious Promise. And they, all, of course, they all ended up in the public school. And that's when the kindergarten teachers first met kid by the name of Fruit Stand, <laughs> and he showed up at school one day, and the other, they had tags on, and so uh, it's, it was a little awkward at first, people calling that kid Fruit Stand, but they did, and they played together, and, and the little kids would say, hey, hey, Fruit Stand, you want to play with these blocks, or do you want to swing outside Fruit Stand, and so everything was going good throughout the day, and, and the evening came when it was time to... Uh, for the teacher to take the kids out to the bus to catch a bus home. And, and the teacher, the kindergarten teacher's there with fruit stand. And she said, fruit stand, do you know which bus you're on? He said, it's on my tag. And she looked down and said, fruit stand. And she flipped it over. And on the other side was his name, Anthony. <laughs> Can you imagine being called fruit stand all day? <laughs> the Lord's got a name. And the Israelites were despising his name. The greatest name for God in the Bible is Father. Now throughout Malachi here and a lot of other books of the Bible, he's called the Lord of hosts. And several times in the book of Malachi, he's called Lord of hosts. But here he refers to himself. He says, a son honoreth his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? God refers to himself as a father. And even in the secular world, sons generally have some respect and give honor to their earthly fathers. And God said, if I'm a great king and I'm the great father, where is my honor? You're not treating me even as good as a secular son would treat his father. The greatest name in the Bible is father. He's our Heavenly Father. In Exodus 4.22, it says God had loved Israel as a father loves his son. The prophet was challenging these priests in particular because they represented the name of God. And they were weary in their worship and the things they were doing was just not very 
pleasant to God. It's kind of like in 2 Samuel when, uh, <clears throat> when David had sinned against God and Nathan the prophet went to him and he said, Thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Well, what's he saying? Would David ever say, I hate God or I hate the name of God? Well, no, he didn't. But by his actions, are you listening? By his actions, he was showing that he had disrespect for the name of God and because of his actions, he caused the heathen to look upon him as they thought of God and despise the name of God. By our actions, we despise the name of God. The priest's simplest and most basic and most bound duty for them to do <clears throat> was to honor God. And yet, they were dishonoring God and God took a very dim view of that. I mean, sure, profanity, we think of dishonoring the name of God and blasphemy, we think of profanity. And it is an ungodly sin to cuss, Christian. But that's not the worst form of blasphemy. The worst form of blasphemy is when we dishonor God with our lives. We claim the name of Christ and then live like we belong to the devil. Profanity cheapens the name of God for sure. But grumbling as a Christian, listen, grumbling as a Christian continually cheapens the name of God and ruins your testimony for God. Are you God's child? Is he your father? Do you grumble because you what you don't have? What God hasn't done for you? Sometimes I hear people criticize their own church. And parents, if you go home and have roasted preacher for lunch on Sunday, you're destroying God's name in the presence of your children. Hey, if you don't agree with the preacher, go talk to the preacher privately, not in front of your kids. Because one day they'll grow up and one day they'll face some decisions and you'll want the preacher's advice on how to handle some of those things. But the kids are going to say, why would I want to listen to him? I've heard you criticize him all my life. <coughs> Criticizing your own church. Or being fearful. How do we cheapen God's name? By being fearful to mention him to the lost around us. Failure to praise God's name? How do we praise God's name? We're giving testimony in church, singing. Praise the name of the Lord. Are you ashamed of him? Then there's a third one. I've got to give you this before my time runs out. The third, third sign that these people, these Israelites, were weary in their worship and what they did to bring it on Number three is defiling God's altar. For sake of time, I won't read verses 7 through 14 again, but you'll find it there. And what we find there, as you read those last seven verses of the scripture in Malachi chapter 1, you'll find an attitude among these priests and the people who follow them. It was a sneering, rebellious attitude of the priests Revealed in what they said. The word of the Lord came to them through Malachi and he said, Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And you say, Wherein have we polluted thee? 
in that you say the table of the Lord is contemptible? Wow. God knew their thoughts. You know God knows our thoughts. <laughs> he knows if you, if, if you think it's a drudgery to go to church on Sunday and to worship the Lord, God knows that. You don't even have to say it out loud. God knew that they were saying that in their heart. And He knows if you're saying it in your heart. These things of the Lord, I'm kind of bored with it. <laughs> Nothing in this for me. I'm weary of all this worship. Well, that's what the Israelites were saying. And even if they didn't say it out loud, that the table of the Lord is contemptible, their ungodly attitude was obvious. Not only in what they said, but they also had an attitude revealed in what they sacrificed. In verse number 8 it says, And ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? I mean, they were, <coughs> they were going out there and picking through the flock. And they'd pick some old flea-bitten goat. Looked like he had the mange and he's about to die. And they'd say, look, we're going to save those good ones for our flock. Let's take this old flea-bitten goat and we'll sacrifice that to the Lord. Let's go over here. Here's an old blind sheep that can't find water and can't find food and it's just a, it's a burden anyway. We'll take that old blind sheep and we'll sacrifice that on the altar to the Lord. It won't matter. Their attitude was that any old thing will do for the Lord. Any old attitude will do for the Lord. Any old offering will do for the Lord. <laughs> I heard about a church one time that had their members to gather up all their used tea bags and send them to a mission work in the Carib Caribbean islands for the church members there. And they said, well, <clears throat> we know they're used tea bags, but those people don't know what good tea bags are probably anyway. We'll just send those over there and it'll be good enough for them. What? <laughs> Any old thing will do for the Lord. The attitude of the priests was revealed by what they sacrificed. God says it was evil. Any old thing will do for the Lord. I mean, yeah, I made, I made $1,000 this week, but I'm going to put a $5 tip in the plate for the Lord. That ought to be good enough for Him. Any old thing will work for God. After all, he's gracious and forgiving. And if I give God a little tip along the way, I mean, I want to go over here. Hey, hey, fellas, let me ask you a question. What if you go out and buy a $600 suit for yourself and then bring your wife home a $6 dress from the yard sale? How would that go over? That's what he's saying here. He's saying, take your offerings. Take those old flea-bitten goats and blind sheep and the crippled ones. Take them down to your governor and make a sacrifice for him. Give him an offering for your taxes out of that. See how that works. Think the governor will be happy with that? Well, no, but it'll be okay for God. You know what it is? One reason we grow weary in our worship is because we just push anything off on God that'll work. The, the, if I've got some spare time, I'll donate it to the Lord, but I'm not going to make a special effort to put it on the calendar and do something for God. Hey, if, if there's somebody that comes to me and needs to know how to get saved, they just come out and ask me, I'll tell them, but I'm not going to go out there and tell somebody that didn't ask. 
if it's time to receive an offering and I've bought all the entertainment and the toys and everything that I desire, if there's anything left, I'll give a little bit to the Lord. Now I know this is already, I, I, I hit on it in a sermon a week ago and Aaron hit on it this morning and believe me, none of this was coordinated. It's just in the scripture. The great thing about preaching the Bible is you just preach it when you come to it. <laughs> These priests, they'd just take any old animal and sacrifice it to the Lord. Anything will be okay for God. Wait. God gave back in the giving of the law, the Levitical law, he said, take the best of the flock to offer it in worship. And do you know that the Bible, Aaron read this one too. I mean, he duplicated my whole message. I'm going to have to keep an eye on that boy. He, said, he, he mentioned out of Luke this morning and uh, the verse of scripture, I'm going to take it out of Matthew so I've got a different scripture. It says the same thing, but mine sounds different. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 21, it says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to follow. Where do you put most of your money? Show me your checkbook register and I'll show you where you spent the most money. That's where your heart's at. Hello? (laughs) If we give the best to the Lord, give of the first fruits to the Lord. The scripture seems to condone that. But God wasn't happy with these priests giving those old mangled up animals as offerings. <laughs> About like that lady that fixed the old rooster that's going to die anyway for the preacher on Sunday. <laughs> I probably won't want any fried chicken for a week now. <laughs> and then there attitude he contrasts in verses 11 through 14 he contrasts the attitude of the Israelites to the heathen this is sad he says in verse number 11 about the heathen those who live outside of Israel he says from the rising of the sun even unto the going down of the same my name shall be great among the Gentiles Whoa, did Malachi know anything about this church age? I think not. Did Malachi know anything about the millennial kingdom? I think he did. He was probably thinking about the millennial kingdom. One of these days in the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ, the Gentiles who are saved are going to walk right in. And they're going to be there with the Jews. So there's going to be a bunch of Gentiles in the kingdom of God. (coughs) And God says, you Jews, you haven't... uh, you haven't dignified my name. You haven't sacrificed the best for the Lord. But the Gentiles, one of these days, they will show glory to my name. In this church age, some of that is happening now. I mean, how many Jews do we have in here this morning? Anybody? We're all Gentiles. And when we praise the Lord, we're bringing glory to His name. The Jews kind of got left out there because they were self-centered thinking about doing everything for themselves and ignoring God. They grew weary. 
can I just tell you that when you begin to place value on all of the things of the world, it's going to take away from your excitedness about worshiping the Lord. Just out of high school, 1969, I was going to college that fall, and there in Guyon, Arkansas, you've been there, Brother Lloyd, and Guyon, sand mines back in the mountains, and uh, a mill out there by the edge of the river that is still in operation today. They mill sand, silica sand, and ship it all over the country. And I worked there. They, they were hiring some of us guys that were going to college. They, the community kind of wanted to show their support for us, and so they hired us to work. Well, I went on graveyard shift. I never worked graveyard shift in my life. I'd stayed all, all night doing other stuff, but not work. I'm just a teenager. I'm unsaved at that time, self-centered, looking for what I want to do, but they gave me a job on graveyard shift all by myself out there. I mean, there were other people on the property, but they were like hundreds of yards away. I had a tower that's probably 200 feet high, and the sand would come out of the, out of the mines into a washer and then through a dryer and then up a conveyor belt to the top of that tower called the, uh, the screen tower. Well, my job was to go up in the screen tower, climb ladders all the way up 200 feet, and, and take a steel brush on a long wooden handle and brush those screens. They were kind of sitting like this at an angle so the sand would work its way down from 200 feet down to zero, and different mesh of screens would have different size of sand granules. Well, my job was to brush those screens with a steel brush so they wouldn't get clogged up because when they get clogged up, the sand starts overflowing, and it's... It's just like an avalanche in there. And so if you let that happen, the whole mill has to shut down and kind of clean that out. So my job, if I didn't do my job, they would know. <laughs> well, when I, when I first started that, I, I kind of liked it. I thought, well, that would be cool being up all night. <laughs> but it was in July and August, and it was hot. We didn't have air conditioning where I grew up, and I don't think anybody else did either. And so I'd sleep in the daytime or try to sleep and have an old fan, window fan, blowing hot air across me out of 100 degree temperature. And so but I thought this would be cool. So I, I started out liking the job, but as time went on, I got weary of climbing up 200 feet and the noise in there was deafening. I mean, that's probably why my hearing is so bad today. I mean, you could stand this close to somebody and yell in their face and they couldn't hear a word you're saying. And it was deafening. And all that hot sand was sifting around and dust flying and hot sand drifting down your shirt collar. And I'd have to brush those screens. Start at the top and work 200 feet down. I'd have to take the front end loader, scoop it, go outside the tower where the scalpings, they called it, the, the extra sand that didn't go through the screens, it would fall outside those big silos. I'd have to take a front end loader, loader and dip up the excess sand that fell outside in the bucket and haul it over several hundred feet away to pile it in another pile where it was discarded forever. Well, about the time I got the sand hauled away, the scalpings, I'd have to go back, climb up the 200 feet, and do it all over again. After a few weeks, I got weary. I began to think no human beings should be subjected to this kind of abuse. But they were being kind to me and let me make a little money saving up for college that fall, so I stuck with it, but boy, I was weary. Now, let me say this. Christian, you can be weary in the work, but you shouldn't ever be weary of the work. I preach not because I have to. I 
preach because I love the ministry, I love the Word of God, I love the Lord as much as I ever did. And sometimes I get weary in the work. Sometimes I'm tired. Some days go by and it's uneventful. <laughs> Nothing happens. And I think I'm feeling ashamed of collecting a, a salary from God's people for not doing anything today. And the next day, 19 gazillion phone calls and people in two or three hospitals and like a funeral or two and a wedding or two to do all at the same time. And I think nobody should be abused this way. <laughs> kind of makes up for yesterday. I got feeling that way in that sand mill and I, I thought, man, this is, this is weary. Christians have something worse than weariness and work to avoid. And that's weariness in your worship. If you come to the point where weariness has set in and your worship is laborious, it's hard. And you go to church because if I don't, people think bad of me. Then you become weary in the worship. There was a time when you used to tell people about Jesus. There was a time when you got up on Sunday morning and thought, boy, today I get to go to church. There was a time when you got to church and you had a smile on your face and you sang in the congregationals. There was a time when the offering plate was passed and even though we're using the boxes on the wall, now there's some people that don't even know what those boxes mean. And some of you do. Some, there's always an element of the church that makes up for the slack and there's those who are slackers that'll let you make up the slack. When you get weary of your worship, it's kind of like living in a graveyard. You've got no choice but to be there, but you don't like it. Somebody said if you live in a graveyard too long, you'll stop crying when somebody dies. You get calloused. If you live in a graveyard of weariness of worship, it gets harder and harder, and someday it'll just get where you're not concerned at all. When those people in Malachi's day became weary in their worship, it's certain that they were doubting God's love. And maybe you have doubted God's love. They caused a cloud to hang over God's name because of the way they were living. When individuals become weary in their worship, their attitude can be contagious and it'll spread. My prayer is, God, don't let me be the one to spread that plague a weariness of worship. I may get tired, but I don't ever be tired of worship. Jesus spoke to the church at Laodicea in Revelation. Remember that? Hey, you know, God wants you hot or he wants you cold. That's what scripture says. He said, I, I would that you were hot or cold. One of the two. But he said, if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. I seem like, it always seemed to me like it ought to be better to be lukewarm than just totally cold, but that's not what God says. <laughs> he says he'd rather you'd be cold or hot. Either let the world know that you're living for the devil and you're living for him wholeheartedly or be on fire for God and let everybody know. But don't grow lukewarm and weary in your worship. After Sunday school one morning, a little boy knelt at his bedside and he said, <clears throat> Dear God, we had a good time at church today, but 
I sure wish you'd have been there. Do you sense God in your worship? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we examine our own hearts and see if we've grown a little cold or a little lukewarm. And Lord, if our worship used to be more exciting than it is now, Lord, show us. Help us not to deny it, but just say, Lord, I'm sorry. I have been lukewarm. I don't want to be. Lord, forgive me. And stir my heart into a full-fledged flame. I want to be on fire for you, God. I don't want to be weary in my worship. I want my worship to be enthusiastic. Lord, help me to be that kind of Christian. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed.